We made this. Milestones, the podcast about naming ceremonies and birth, weddings and relationships, and funerals and death, right here on the We Made This Podcast Network. My name's Mark Adams and I am your host and I am a humanist celebrant. That means that I am accredited by Humanists UK to write and perform humanist ceremonies, namings, weddings and funerals, and indeed other ceremonies such as renamings and pet funerals. Every fortnight, I have a different guest to talk to them about their life's milestones. And my guest this time is Andrew Copson. Andrew is the Chief Executive of Humanists UK and the President of Humanists International. And as well as that, he is a best-selling author, having very recently released a book that went right in in its first week into the top 10 best-selling non-fiction books. That is The Little Book of Humanism, which he wrote with his colleague Alice Roberts. As well as The Little Book of Humanism, he's also written The Wiley Handbook of Humanism, Secularism, Politics, Religion and Freedom, and Secularism, A Very Short Introduction, all of which I've actually read, because just like Andrew, I am both a humanist and a secularist, and it's an absolute honour to have someone who does just incredible work on my podcast to talk about his life milestones with me and I just want to thank Andrew for taking time out of his very very busy schedule to speak to me. Just before I hand over to the interview with Andrew, very quick reminder that any regular listeners of Life's Milestones get a 10% discount on a naming ceremony or a wedding performed by me. When you get in touch, just make sure that you use the reference milestones. That being said, I'm now going to hand over to my interview with Andrew Copson. With me at this time is Andrew Copson. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Welcome to Life's Milestones. And um, I think you're probably my most famous guest so far. So I'm so oh, glad dear. to have you on. <laughs> best-selling author Andrew you, you're not doing yourself in a justice I don't think <laughs> oh well, that's true I suppose yes that's true the Sunday Times bestseller I'll always have that you're right exactly you're definitely my first Sunday Times bestseller that I've had on the show anyway so very quickly to begin with we do a guest profile and it is a personal question but the first one is how old are you Ah, I'm 39, soon to turn 40 in this year of COVID. So I'm contemplating what would have been a, a big 40th birthday as being sort of me and the dog in, in at home. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that kind of thing going on at the moment. And True. have you thought about maybe having a Zoom party or, or do, we, do we think Zoom's now a little bit passe? I'm definitely not going to have a Zoom party. I'm, I'm, I'm a victim of Zoom fatigue. You know, I sit at home all day on Zoom and I, 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 I've, I've lost uh, the will to engage with people that way. So, no, I think I'm saving myself up for uh, to pretend I'm 40 when I'm really 41 next year, which that, will do me right for the rest of my life, I think. Yeah, that'll work. Yeah, and, and you can always pretend and then you're always yeah. a year younger. That's exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> so where are you from and what's your background? I'm from Nuneaton which is a uh, small 
town in the Midlands that most people know from having gone through it on the train. It's also a uh, famous as the birthplace of the of George Eliot, great humanist novelist, and I was born in the George Eliot Hospital there. What's my background? That's an interesting question. Do, what do you mean, sort of like socially? You mean am I a, am I a, a viscount or something? Or yeah, I, I guess so. I, I guess <laughs> well, it's I'm up, not, up to I'm any. Not a viscount. <laughs> are you not a viscount? I'm I am a bit disappointed, Andrew. Uh, yeah, no, I had a very normal working class upbringing in the Midlands, really. So my my grandfathers were all miners or uh, assembly line workers, you know, factory line workers at the mm. lots of cars, of course, Dunlop and Rolls Royce and all the rest of it in, in, in the Midlands. So that's what they did. And I had a slightly different um, trajectory to my life, because although that was my uh, immediate background and family background, when I was um, 11, I was whisked off to what used to be the grammar school locally, but had become an independent school and the government ran a scheme when I was young between 1979 and 1997 actually if if you were from a very poor background but you scored in the top 10% of entrance in 11 plus exams they paid for your fees to the local independent school so I was whisked off in that strange direction very unusual trajectory for my life from the point of view of my family um, and became um, very interested in in more academic pursuits and so ended up going to university to study classics and ancient and modern history um, and so I had a strange mixture, really, in my in my youth, anyway, of a very poor working class background uh, in family terms, but a strange elite education, right. Latin, Greek, and classics at Oxford. Right. I mean, that already makes you interesting. But um, <laughs> the next question is, what do you do that makes you interesting? We've already covered that you are That's a <laughs> Sunday Times best-selling author. Please feel free to plug your book. But you're also the chief exec of Humanist UK. Tell us a little bit about both of those things. Well, I became the chief executive of Humanist UK um, almost exactly 10 years ago now, actually. I've been there for just, just in that job for just over 11 years. Having first joined Humanist UK when I was a student at university because I learned about the campaigns that they were running at that time to try and oppose the government's plan to expand religious schools, state religious schools in the UK, which I thought was a very strange thing to do. And so I joined Humanist UK because Humanist UK was the organisation that was really speaking up against that. And that's one of the things that Humanist UK does. It advocates for um, equality and an end to discrimination based on religion or belief in, in, our, in our public life. But Humanist UK also, of course, provides uh, celebrants to do uh, ceremonies, funerals, weddings, and namings, and other life events, as you know very well. Hi, yeah. and, <laughs> and, and our celebrants are the best, let me tell you. I know you know it, but let me plug you there. <laughs> and, of course, promote humanism as a, a set of values, beliefs, and opinions that many people have in this country, many millions of people have, without necessarily knowing that there's a word for it, that they're shared, that there's an organization promoting them. And so that's one of the things, for example, that I've tried to get out there in, in the latest book, which you've kindly invited me to plug, um, <laughs> which I wrote with Alice Roberts and which went into the Sunday Times best-selling chart for one week only, but there we are. Still um, counts. <laughs> still counts, that's true, actually. Not many books go into there at all, that's true, which is The Little Book of Humanism. And in that book, The Little Book of Humanism, available at all good bookshops, um, Alice and I put together a, a range of different quotes, bits of wisdom from the past, two, two and two and a half thousand years of, of humanist uh, thinking about life, the universe and everything together with some of our own thoughts. And, and that's really what my life's work so far has been about since I started at Humanist UK 15 years ago, 10 years as chief executive, five years before that as well as in, in other roles, has been to try and communicate to those people here and around the world who do have humanist beliefs and opinions and values, who live their lives 
uh, lives with a, a humanist approach that their values aren't somehow second best or parasitic on the religious beliefs they they grew up with you know and um, mm. they don't feel a lack of confidence in that in, in in those views those beliefs are a coherent worldview a respectable one one that has a name one that's widely shared and one that's made huge contributions to human welfare and fulfillment over the last two and a half thousand years of our species so that's the point of humanist organizations and that's mm. uh, why i love so much uh working with them. I'm also currently president of Humanist International, which does the same sort of job on a global scale to unite the various national humanist organisations. And it's incredibly fulfilling work. Yeah, you're a very, very busy man. I've actually had a chance to have a quick look at the little book of humanism. And just so you know, I am going to steal some of it to put in my ceremonies. Oh, good. That's excellent. Flattery. I mean, we stole most of it ourselves, as I said. (laughs) (laughs) Pass it on. So we're going to move on to talk about birth. And the first question is, when and where and how were you born? Well, you know, I don't remember it myself. I've got <laughs> it. I can only uh, rely on the testimony of others. I was born in, in George Eliot Hospital, as I said, which was nice, named after a good famous humanist. So I'm pleased in hindsight about that. <laughs> but one thing I've always been disappointed about in my birth is that I was... So I've said that George Eliot is the most famous resident of Nuneaton, but there is another famous person from Nuneaton who is the TV comedian Larry Grayson. Now, are you old enough to remember Larry Grayson? Probably not, actually. I'm older than you. Are you? You're not, but you look so young. Oh, do you know? How old are you? I'm 42. Ah, good age. Uh, Are you actually 43, like I will be, but lying about it? No, no lying on that one, actually. Um, Well, you remember Larry Grayson, do you? Yeah. Okay, good shut that door and all the rest of it. Well, his he was, of course, not only from Nuneaton, but lived his whole life in Nuneaton, in, a, in the posh end of Nuneaton, I have to say, and lived with his sister his whole life. And she was a midwife at the George Eliot Hospital. Right. Oh, yes. And my younger brother was delivered by her, but I wasn't. So there you go. That's my sad story, is that I, I wish I'd been delivered by Larry Grayson's sister, but I wasn't. Um, but I was born in George Eliot Hospital in 1980, in entirely normal circumstances, as far as I'm informed. My mother was very high on pethidine and I slipped out easily, I think. <laughs> so, uh, tell us a favourite story about your childhood. That's interesting. What, do you mean uh, something that I remember? Uh, um, either or, if someone's told you a story about you that you liked and you want to let people know about, or you can just tell me something that you remember from your early years. I don't have many memories of my childhood, really. It's a sort of undifferentiated, generally happy time i'm more of a, a liver in the present i have to say than, than looking back so i don't often think about memories of my own life um i remember once trying to bring a slug back to life by um putting it in my mouth because i noticed it had gone dry and i thought that since slugs were sometimes wet or normally wet if you wetened them they might come back to life but apart from that <laughs> <laughs> i can't think of any particularly appealing stories what sort of stories do people usually tell about themselves i bet none of them are true anyway when other um, people tell stories about I think there's been stuff about like when they were very young or a lot a lot of people have said stuff. things or uh, win some things that they can I guess remember. if I was asked that question I'd probably tell a story that I don't remember but it's one of my dad's favorites the when I was picked up by the doctor he pe- pressed my tummy and I weed on him oh so. I did that how funny I did that too <laughs> Maybe it's a general story that they feed you in the Matrix, you know, to make you feel like you had to... Oh, <laughs> you think it could be a fib? I think you've been, that's been replicated. No, I did that as well. Or maybe it was my brother. I don't know, you know, my brother was only two years younger than me, so there's lots of stories where it's difficult to remember whether or not 
it was he who did the appealing thing or I who did the appealing thing, you know, in question <laughs> of the, the story that's being retold. We, I didn't have a family really that was dominated by children, you know. It's, I know that lots of children are sort of the centre of their family life and we were obviously well loved and well cared for, but our family was really dominated by old women. We had great grandmothers, you know, everywhere and grandmothers and aunts and, and, and mother and so on. And so really my, my stories of being a child are all stories of family life and I suppose I remember the same things as everyone else, you know, being warm, being happy going to the video shop to hire a video when it was a special treat, being allowed Woolworths pick and mix and, and all the other sort of things that happen. Sounds like we had pretty similar childhoods, actually. Where are you from? Where are you from? Wolverhampton originally. I've lived in Manchester like, for 22 years. Obviously just a classic Midlands childhood of the 80s. You know, there you go. It's just, <laughs> it was all about the Woolworths pick and mix and the video shop. There you are. Do you know, you're not wrong. <laughs> What's wrong with that, eh? What's wrong with that? Exactly. Do you have children yourself? No, I don't have children. No. I did consider at one point adopting children and went uh, started at the initial stage of that process. But it was so off-putting, the process. Well, no, that sounds very weak, a very weak uh, explanation, doesn't it? But um, it was a very off-putting process, you know. I'm not saying I won't come back to it one day, but it's very difficult if you can't sort of have children by accident or by normal biological means to, to, yeah. to make the you know, to go out and, and achieve them through some other way when you're very busy. So now I don't have children, but I do have three, well, you know, you don't want to use the word godchildren, do you? You want to find other alternatives. But guide parents, guide maybe. Parents, yeah, I like sparents, but... Sparents, Ooh, I've not even heard that. Sparents is my favourite alternative to godparents. But anyway, um, three children in whom, you know, we take a, a special interest by invitation. And um, I get a lot of enjoyment out of spending time with them especially now they're a bit older sort of you know mm. nine and eleven and um that's a that's a very uh enjoyable part of my life but no no children of my own so you, you you said you looked at adopting but you didn't go through with that is that something you won't do in future you're not planning on any children in your future well, maybe i don't know i i do like the idea of children of course i, th I think that it's a very special thing to be able to give a, a supportive home and a, and a future and a, a happy life as far as one mm. can provide it to, to another person and to help that person, you know, grow and develop and take their place in the world, I think would be a very special experience and a very special opportunity. But I don't have any immediate plans to do so. Of course, being so busy in other areas of your life it's very hard to take especially hard when you've got to take the active decision to do something like adopt for example or mm. or seek some sort of i mean i've had friends who've who've, who've had uh, children through surrogate means for example and yeah. you know you've really got to to put a lot of time and attention into it and just as i was getting started and thinking about that a couple of years ago now my younger brother died very suddenly and so there was a lot of family disruption and changes in circumstances that right we had to go through you know we moved house we moved my mother in with us and um lots of change and and and, and reconfiguration in our family life and our home life so of course it's there's still plenty of time people these days have have children uh, really what seem like quite advanced ages to us mm. Mm. absolutely and, uh, and if you're adopting children of course uh, especially if they might be older children then time's almost an irrelevance mm. so right in Not theory really. If you were to have children, yes, do you think you'll have a naming ceremony or a christening or some other ceremony to welcome them into the world? I would have a christening. I, I imagine that's your standard question, is it? <laughs> that is the standard question, yeah. 
I'm Ask inclusive you. on this podcast, Andrew, just because we're both humanists. OK, well, I certainly would have a ceremony. And I think actually adoption, especially of an older child, can be uh, a ceremony can be extremely um, rewarding because, I mean, all humanist, all humanist ceremonies are obviously very tailored, very specific, very bespoke and meaningful on that basis to, to the people that, that are involved in them. But I think adoption ceremonies can be particularly so because they give an opportunity actually to welcome uh, children who are more capable than babies are of being conscious that they are being welcomed um, and incorporated and yeah. folded in to, to an existing family. So I certainly would, if we were to ever proceed with adoption, I would definitely have a ceremony. And uh, I think it can be a very useful uh, ceremony as well as a very meaningful one to, to create that new family and to, to stand up publicly and say that it's there. Hmm. I, I agree. And um, I haven't had the, the chance to do an adoption yet. And I would really like to because I think yeah. the emotion involved, it, you, you only do namings if you, you know, you love kids and you want to be a part of that kind of ceremony. And yeah, I think that I think there would be something very special about a ceremony that's written for an adopted child. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, I've been to them and they are uh, really very, very special occasions. Okay, so we're going to move on and talk about weddings. So, first of all, are you married? No, I'm not married. Um, my partner and I, we did have a civil partnership in 2011, prompted in a not very romantic way by a political desire to increase the numbers of civil partnerships on the census. <laughs> and <laughs> How very <laughs> we were, well we've been together you know since university for i think nine i hope he's not listening i get this wrong um 19 <laughs> either 19 or 20 years this year <laughs> wow and, and that's a very long time i mean that's almost half my life now and so in 2011 the decision to have a civil partnership wasn't only motivated by the desire politically to push the civil partnership figures up on the census um although that was the immediate trigger yeah. um obviously it was also motivated by the same sort of desires that anyone has when they want to give a, a legal significance to their relationship you know we loved each other we knew that we were the people in whose lives we wanted to to share and so we went forward on that basis to have a civil partnership which of course at the time was the only legal relationship that was available marriage wasn't available now yeah. since then of course marriage has become available but we've both agreed that we don't want a civil marriage and that we would we're holding out for when humanist marriages become legal in england and wales which hopefully um will not be uh, too long we've been waiting now seven years in 2013 i don't want to bore your listeners with legal details of yeah. marriage law in england but in 2013 parliament created a new category of marriage in England and Wales, which was to include humanist marriages and gave government the power to you know, trigger that new law whenever it wanted. But in the last seven years, um, government hasn't done that. And so we've been waiting now seven years for government to do that. And when, when humanist marriage yep. does get introduced, we hope to, to take that step together. And well, we have talked with people who genuinely didn't know on this podcast. I've talked to, to them about the difference between a civil partnership and a marriage. And there was even conversation about whether we should have changed civil partnerships automatically to a marriage and civil partnerships not exist anymore. Do you have any strong opinions on that sort of thing? 
I do have quite a strong personal opinion on it. Um, this is very much personal. I mean, Humanist UK is an organisation which, you know, uh, obviously where I work and where I do a lot of public speaking in relation to this issue, Humanist UK as an organisation supported the extension of civil partnerships to opposite sex couples. I had a different view personally. I think that I, I, I think the UK should have gone the same way as Norway, which when it introduced equal marriage, disposed of civil partnerships completely. They said very properly that it was a, a second status, a second tier status thing that had been introduced at a time when there wasn't the political will or the social consensus to give equality. But now that equality existed, the time was to get rid of that essentially homophobic institution, which is what yeah. civil partnership is. Civil partnership is there because people weren't brave enough to, to, to introduce equal marriage. And so that was my view. I mean, it was a stepping stone, wasn't it? That's all it yeah, was. It was stone, but but it was for me, there the clearly was an inequality when gay people were allowed to marry, that straight people weren't allowed to have a civil partnership. For me, I didn't really mind. I wanted one or the other, which we eventually other, got. Like, if civil partnership was going to remain for same-sex couples, then of course it had to be extended for opposite-sex couples. I just mm. wish it hadn't. Just wish it hadn't existed. Yeah. Yeah. So, tell me about your your day, your civil partnership day. Oh, right. Well, it was the same day as the um, protests against the coalition. <laughs> right, OK. Um, the coalition government that had formed. Now, in any case, because it was going to be a civil partnership and convened, as it were, hastily, we didn't uh, have a large occasion. We had, as so many other people have who've rushed through their desires we had camden town hall um because we were in london at the time and mm. camden town hall is where a lot of people have been married over the last uh, 30 or 40 years of liberal and humanistic sympathies having lived in that area of london um and so camden town hall is where we had it we had my my mother we had uh mark's parents and we had the good friends who are the two sets of parents of the three guy children that i mentioned earlier right um and that, I hope I hope that was who we had. I hope I haven't forgotten someone. <laughs> I'm trying to think now. <laughs> um, yes, but that's no, that's right, that's right. Um, and then we we so we had Camden Town Hall, and then we went for lunch. And our friends, our, some of our friends came for lunch. One set of friends came for lunch with us, and the other set went off to protest against the coalition. Amazing. So they they marched off with their banners, which they'd brought up, uh, brought with them. Uh, and it was a very special day, a very enjoyable day, and we cried. Good. It's not a proper wedding if someone doesn't cry. Well, exactly. Everybody cried. Everybody cried. <laughs> so do you have any funny stories other than perhaps some of your party disappearing to protest? Well, I, I do hold it against them, actually. I mean, I don't know if they're listening. That, that She said to me that she regrets it in hindsight, uh, maybe just because the protest didn't work. So she might as well have cut her losses and stayed with us. But <laughs> the um, <laughs> I don't think that's true. Um, but they went off on, on, on the march rather than staying with us. But Are you not uh, tempted to join them? No, I wasn't actually, strangely, on my own civil partnership day, Mark, no. <laughs> <laughs> strangely, I wasn't. Um, I can't remember what it would have been a demonstration about. I mean, in 2011, uh, in March, it was March, so I think it was about the budget, probably, because I remember that the guest in question, I won't name her now that I've uh, criticised her, um, <laughs> had a banner that said, tax the bankers. And so it must have been something about austerity, mustn't it? Mm. Austerity, yeah. austerity protest. So we did not have austerity at our ceremony. We all went off afterwards for champagne lunch in uh, St Pancras Station, 
because it's so close to Camden Town Hall. And my uh, partner is a a train obsessive. He, he his thing is trains. Nice. So it was lovely for him to be able to sit in the champagne bar at St Pancras Station and, and watch the trains come in. And we uh, we we went off then for a couple of nights in Canterbury because it was the place that you could get to on the new fast train from St Pancras. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so that was very romantic for him, but also for me. Although we then, then did have a honeymoon in Boston, which was very enjoyable. Oh, amazing. But then so, none of that is funny, I'm afraid. Nothing amusing happened. Mm. Or like, you mean like the registrar falling down the stairs or something? Yeah. No, so, nothing. We didn't have a big dinner or a big dance or a big guest or anything list. So, um, the, you know, the capacity for anecdotes is limited. So you didn't really have a reception by the sounds of it? Oh, we didn't know. There were just a few of us. We had lunch. Yeah. Right. So no kind of like embarrassing first dance. No, I'm afraid not. I'm afraid not. Our first dance is always embarrassing. They should be, shouldn't they? I mean, I've been to weddings where the first dance is extremely intimidating and the couples had obviously trained long and hard for this choreographed moment. And, you know, no one else dares to get up because they've done so well. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, right. The first dances should be embarrassing. But no, we did not have a, an embarrassing first dance so when you're allowed your humanist yeah. wedding yeah. and you potentially have a reception do you have any idea what you might like for your song for your first dance no i'm afraid not you haven't got a song no no neither have we it drives oh. me crazy he's not bothered oh do you want a song i do, do song yeah uh, I, you know how like couples are supposed to have a song random. i tell you what i'll just i'll just google it for you now right uh, first song, Mark. There you go. And whatever comes up is your song. It's going to be okay. Rick Astley. It, well, I think it's because I put your first. It's it's the it's Marky Mark feet the funky bunch. Good I, vibrations. I don't want that to be but my yours. song. With, it's yours with... now. Sorry, that's it. Oh dear. But I don't have one, and I'm happy not having one soon. <laughs> Right, so we're going to move on to the <laughs> you, arguably more serious part of the podcast, but it doesn't really have to be. We are going to move on and talk about death. And the first one, are you scared of death? Am I scared of death? No, I'm not scared of death, no. Do you want to elaborate on why? Well, I, I don't find it scary. I, uh, I suppose I see death as just a... A natural process, really, which I've thought about. I mean, I've thought about it an awful lot, obviously. I mean, in the nature of my work, I talk mm. about death a lot. And so I've thought about it, written about it, of course, a lot as well, conversed about it with many people and wit witnessed it uh, on occasion, not in the course of work, but in, in the course of my own life. And so I don't find it frightening in itself. I mean, that's not to say that I welcome it. Obviously, I don't. Um, <laughs> I'm not, you know, sitting here waiting for it or anything, ready to welcome it as a friend, um, as, as as some people who are suffering might be. I'm at peace with it, I suppose you might say. I've yeah. thought about it, what it is, what it means, what it will be, and so on. And having thought about it, I've made my peace with it, and you know, try to think about it when I do think about it, as being something that, you know, is an is a natural end to what will hopefully have been a good life and that's the position that death plays in my mind you know for my own yeah. thinking about the world mm. being dead of course is a difficult thing to think about anyway because you it's you know once you're dead you don't exist anymore so i, I suppose it's like you, have you ever had a general anesthetic been under for an operation i have it was yeah. weird right and so you open your eyes and it's like you've you don't believe that you 
have been unconscious, right? Because it's because yeah. no, no time has passed and you, you feel that you, temp- you temporarily have ceased to exist. Well, obviously, that's what death is like, really, right? Okay, apart even more so. So you're literally unaware of being dead. You know, you've 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 ceased. You've 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 ended. You've terminated. So being dead has never worried me i don't worry that there's a hell waiting for me that you know what one second after i close my eyes in death i'm going to open my eyes in a fiery pit you know because i've been so naughty um (laughs) so i mean that's that's good right i don't fear death in that sense i don't fear being dead Mm. um of course i hope that dying won't be too traumatic one can have concerns you know concerns and worries about that that it might be painful it might take place in difficult circumstances or be drawn out or 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 whatever and you worry about other people in that respect as well how how they will be affected by it but death itself as a feature of my life does not frighten me no no it makes complete sense the next question that you have actually touched on this very briefly when we were talking about adoption but have you experienced the death of a loved one Oh, I've experienced a lot of death, unfortunately. I, I said at the beginning when I was growing up that I had a very large family um, when I was a child, and that's true. You know, all my great-grandparents were still with us. My grandparents were still with us, my ex- extended family uh, broadly. But with the death of my brother two years ago, that uh, left after a, a series, a very bad few years, just me and my mum. Because my father died, um, although my parents were divorced, my father died uh, in 2010 um, at the age of 53. And he was that's quite uh, quite young, obviously, these days. Very young. Yeah. And then in, in 2016, we had a very bad, well, everyone had a bad year. Well, lots of people had a bad year in 2016. Obviously, it was the EU referendum. But um, the, <laughs> the I had an extra bad uh, year. Yeah. In that my both, firstly my grandmother died, with whom I was extremely close, mm. and you know she and my grandfather uh, and my mum were really you know my parents in uh, when I was uh, growing up, and so I was very close to her you know sort of speak to her on the phone every other day or so, right up until until that point. Yeah. Um, so firstly she died in 2016, and then oh, see if I get the order right, and then. Her son, my uncle, my only uncle, my my mum's only brother, died again, quite very young. Mm. And then my great aunt died, who again was closer than that might sound. Um, uh, she had lived with my a house fell on her during the war, during the Blitz. Right. Um, and for the rest of her life, she had quite not not very very severe, but severe learning difficulties that had meant that she had lived firstly with my great grandmother. And then once my great grandmother had died, which was about 20 years ago, one of my great grandmothers, she lived this great aunt of mine with well, she, her, her care fell to my grandmother and then to, to my mother. Um, right. And so she died also in that uh, same year. And, and then my grandfather died the next year. Good and then, yes. And then a few months later, my brother died, um, which was, again was a, was he died very young, two years younger than me. So he was 34 when he that right yeah that's so young and so in just two years there was a sort of uh, a holocaust of copsons really and they all disappeared and i saw some of them die as i saw my great-grandmother die 20 years before i saw all of them dead and had to identify my brother's body unfortunately when it when it was repatriated to the uk because he had died aboard so i'm really oh. quite familiar with 
seeing dying and seeing death and seeing the dead and um yes it's quite a <laughs> quite a familiar prospect to me do you feel like the experience that you've had in that kind of area means that we talked about how comfortable you are with the concept of death do you feel that in a weird and obviously unpleasant way it's actually helped you to 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 understand death more seeing it as much as you have well maybe i mean i think i think i felt that way anyway you know and i suppose we all see what we want to see when we see these things and we end up with you know confirmation bias as a terribly strong force in our in our brain so True. when we when we see things we tend to think oh yes that confirms what i've always believed um <laughs> but certainly you know i think seeing people die for me at least has it definitely confirms what i said about death being the end of mm. us because i think it's really difficult you know when you when the moment when someone dies and they you know they go from being alive to being dead it's just so obvious that they've ceased to be you know it seems so obvious to me that everything that was real about them everything that was animating everything that was the person that they were hmm. it's just switched off at the point when when the body dies now i suppose if you thought then that their soul could go elsewhere then you might go and say oh that's the point when the soul leaves the body but um yeah. up until that point you know the person is so intimately connected with the body and it's so obvious to me that the body is is the person and vice versa that i suppose what seeing death has 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 confirmed for me is that it is the end of our personal existence and that therefore there's nothing frightening about it yeah because you know because it doesn't it doesn't mark some some transition to some other place no. that's that's fearful but equally you know i mean it's not very pleasant there's no there's no pretending that dying is is incredible fun you know and the best thing <laughs> the best thing i wish i could do it every day absolutely not and it can be very traumatic it can be very painful it can be very painful people who are watching it obviously happen mm. um and we just have to hope that we can reduce the the pain of the moment for everyone as much as possible um, and of course that can be done you know i was fortunate in my, everyone i've seen die has done so in incalculably greater comfort than people would have done 200 years ago right you know they assisted by first of all obviously by the everyone's everywhere every dying person's friend morphine yes which is um which is a fantastic thing and and also by incredible care medical care and social care and 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 in my case as well familial care you know from 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 family around them but but nonetheless it's not very it's not you know it's not it's not nice it's not what you would want to go through on a daily basis like i say and i think we have to be realistic about that sort of grow up about it a bit. i mean everyone is going to die and however fantastic the the bit between birth and death is you know death is coming and it if you know it isn't going to be pleasant so I think that just being realistic about that's quite important as well. But I, uh, in terms of your question, I don't know. I don't think it's changed very much my fundamental feelings about this. I think it's confirmed them. I suppose what it has given me is a, I don't have, I was never fearful of it. But in addition to not having any fear of it conceptually, conceptually, which I didn't have anyway, mm -hmm. I now don't have any fear of it. The sort, you know, the sort of fear you'd have about the unknown. Yeah. You know, you can say, oh, I'm not afraid of X, Y and Z, having never experienced or seen it. But then you only really know if you're right about that when you, when you do sort of <laughs> see it. And there is a sort of fear that comes from lack of familiarity, isn't there? And so I think if you're more familiar with death, having seen it and encountered it, then that helps to dispel the sort of fear that creates taboos or hmm. um, 
you know, fear of the unknown. So I suppose, yes, those experiences have probably played played their part in dispelling that type of fear from me. Right. So we're going to talk about your funeral. How oh, dear. You, well, I not necessarily. Well, you know, we're not suggesting it will happen soon, but <laughs> humanist funeral training suggests that you should think about your own funeral. And, and, and I, I could answer all these questions. I couldn't have yeah. done before my training, but I can now. So the first one is, do you want to be buried or cremated? I wish to be. Uh, actually, I don't. I know everyone says this, but I, uh, and they don't necessarily mean it. But I actually don't mind. I'd either like to be buried or have my ashes scattered in the field at the end of the garden. That's very. That's that's what I feel right. um, quite strongly. But I don't actually mind which of those it is. Okay. The, the garden of your current home. Current. Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah. Right. Okay. And um, what really we fell in love with, you know, really, and we've, where we've moved now, and, and just since my brother's death, and 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 with my mum, and I think that um, I like to think that this would be the place where we live really much for our whole lives now, because it's that mm. sort of place, you know, and and so that's what I would like. Um, but I don't know. Do 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 you know whether you want to be cremated or buried? I do. I I I think cremation is, is for like me. Cremation? I yeah. I don't know if it's fair, but. I tend to associate burials more with faith than oh. than not. Well, of course, that is normal now. I mean, in, in Britain now, not in Northern Ireland, but in Britain, obviously, almost all burials are religious because um, most people are cremated, and it's and that because that's the default. You know, you have to have a special reason not to be. Yeah. And that is, that is almost always the religious reason, so a Catholic or a Muslim or, or Jewish or whatever. But of course, especially the growth in woodland burial has, has given a new reason for humanist inclined, you know, non-religious people to have that sort of burial. In fact, that's what my grandmother had. And hmm. and I think that I, I wouldn't mind that. I wouldn't mind that. But I'd do whatever's most environmentally friendly. I don't know which that is. Probably probably burial, maybe. Don't I know. think it's cremation. Oh, is it? Oh, fine. You convinced me. I, I don't really mind. I'll be, I'll be cremated and then I'll be scattered, yeah, in the, in the field. I did a burial funeral in a Catholic plot not so long ago. So they had this Catholic plot that this family had had for forever, but these people didn't have faith. So they asked me to do their funeral. And I was like, can I do this? When I spoke to the... Um, the, the fellow that worked at the crematorium and he was like i hope so because you're booked to do it <laughs> so you know the, the even the religious plots don't necessarily have religious people in that's interesting isn't it i didn't know that that was possible well i didn't until i turned up it happened now anyway they can't they can't dig them up no exactly i bloody hope not <laughs> so do, have you any idea of a reading that you would like to be read at your funeral perhaps something from the little book of humanism well, why not the whole thing? Just red, <laughs> red cover to cover. I think that would be the best solution. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I suppose, I mean, I haven't thought about it, but maybe I would like something read from something I've written myself, actually. I don't know. That's, That's a, a, nice good, idea. It's a good point. Um, I like Bertrand Russell, of course, about, you know, that famous passage about the life, you know, the life well lived being like the river that yeah. feeds into the sea and that idea of thinking about your existence like that. I mean, that's a good passage. I quite like the I read a quite moving essay by mini essay. I think it was started as a newspaper column by the philosopher Anthony Grayling mm -hmm. at my brother's funeral um, about grief and sorrow and how you know those that are dead would want us to, to mourn, you know, not not too much and, and so on. And what would uh, it's quite a 
that, that's quite a good reading. So I'd like that. I think really, you know, funerals are obviously, as we all know, for not for the dead, but for the living. And mm. so I do think it's good in funerals to have readings and reflections which offer something to the grieving. Yeah. You know, rather than necessarily um, are about the, the preferences of the person who's died. Of course, you know, readings that are related to the character of the person who's died can can offer resources for grieving mm. um, for those who, who are still alive, of course, as well. But, um, yeah, I think something on uh, A.C. Grayling's work on sorrow, something maybe Bertrand Russell about life giving into the sea and so on. I like those two readings very much. Yeah, they are. They're very, very lovely. And the last one is... What music tracks would you select for entrance, reflection and exit for your funeral? Mm. Joe, I haven't thought about uh, entrance, actually. I think that I'm afraid I don't know. I'll have to think further about that and um, get back to you in a few years when I've uh, I've developed my thinking. For reflection, I want Brahms sextet number one in B flat. Lovely. I like Brahms in general. Mm-hmm. And I think it's good for reflection. And I think it'd be a good piece because it's, it moves most people to tears. And I do want people to be able to cry, you know, for <laughs> halfway through. I think that's important. You know, I remember with my brother, we had Danny Boy for his reflective piece. And that's absolutely wow. guaranteed to sort of purge your, yeah. your grief, your tears. And I think that's really important, actually, which whenever the moment is in the ceremony, you know, mm-hmm. to have that. That's just a personal belief of mine. And I think it's my funeral so people can have what I think is good for them. And I think that would be good for them if they had a good <laughs> right at that point. So a bit of Brahms. Also, that happens to be the piece that I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan, but there's an episode in the Star Trek Next Generation when Sarek, the, the old Vulcan ambassador, appears as a character. And right. he's um, got a sort of Vulcan dementia. Vulcans don't show emotion, you see. But he's got a sort of Vulcan dementia. And one of the ways they find out is because during a recital at which this this bit of Brahms is played, he sheds a tear. I do remember um, that. Do you remember it? Well, that's that's the one, that's the piece. And so if it can make a Vulcan cry, it can certainly do the same job for the mourners at my funeral. That's my reasoning. So I'll have that. <laughs> okay. um, and on the way out, I want Yazoo, Only You. Oh, what a gorgeous song. It's a lovely song. And it's a song about love, which is what life's all about, you know. Mm. And so I think that's a good a good end. Mm. I mean, talking about crying, when I saw... I mean, I had had perhaps more of the naughty waters than I should have had. But when I saw Alison Moyet at Manchester Pride, I, I just cried because she was so uh, bloody uh, brilliant. <laughs> yes, yes. That's in general a good thing about anything by, by Yuzu, of course. Yeah. That's a lovely choice. I really, I mean, I, I love Yuzu and I love Alison Moyet. Good choice. Well, I think you feel it now, are you? Yeah. Just from humanism. <laughs> so, Andrew, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Life's Milestones. Where can people find you on the internet? Oh, I don't know. Um, I, Twitter? Yeah, wherever pe- wherever you want people to find you. Um, I suppose Twitter's the best place, at Andrew Copson. Mm-hmm. Come and say hello there, and I'll tell you to buy my book. Good. And where can people get your book? Everywhere. Um, I mean, we, that you can get it from your local bookshop. Waterstones has got a good couple of thousand copies in stock, I happen to know, at least at the date of recording this. And if you're not averse to their working practices, then Amazon, of course, is the place that can get it to you the quickest. But <laughs> some people that have ethical concerns. And so um, your local bookshop, or Hive, you know, there's this 
great website, hive.co.uk, where you buy a book from them and they make a donation to a local bookshop. And do you have your own website or would you just direct people to the Humanists UK website? I do have a website, actually, andrewcopson.com, where there's some blogs and, and information about some of the other books. But of course, the, the main website that everyone should spend their life exploring is humanists.uk. Um, so humanists.uk is the website of Humanists UK and is well worth uh, a visit. Andrew, thank you so much for sharing your life's milestones with me. Thank you. I'd just like to say one more time, thank you so much to Andrew Copson for taking time out of his incredibly busy schedule to speak to me about his life's milestones. In fact, this same week as he spoke to me was the launch of the UK Freedom of Religion and Belief Forum, of which he is a steering group member. The, the forum is designed to uphold freedom of religion and belief for everybody. And I've never made this podcast about interviewing humanists. I've always said that I want some diversity. But the reality is I am a humanist. And while I'm talking about Andrew and the great work that he does, you might want to have a look at the other humanist campaigns that Humanists UK do. If you have a look at humanism.org.uk, you'll find information about their campaigns on illegal faith schools, secularism in Britain, human rights, marriage equality, the reformation of RE classes, assisted dying, conversion therapy for gay people, which if you didn't know is still legal in this country, and unelected bishops in the House of Lords. In a couple of days, I will be updating the playlist with all of Andrew's choices. And that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to Life's Milestones. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. Life's Milestones is a podcast by me, Mark Adams. Follow me on Twitter at MarkAdamsHC. That's also my handle for instagram if you're looking for my website it's www.humanist.org.uk forward slash mark adams if you're looking for my facebook it's mark adams humanist celebrant all the information on how to use me as your celebrant is there the show's social media is at life's milestones on twitter other than that i am just using my celebrant contacts for the show thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Elsewhere on We Made This. The X-Cast. An X-Files podcast. There's just this moment, and I can see it in my head now, of complete glee that Scully has on her face as they dive in to open their presents. And it's, it's you know, the camera's moving away from the scene. It's not even like a, a huge close-up, but um, just her choice in that moment as, as, a, as an actor is just superb to give us that sense about what their dynamic is. Mm. Um, I love the... Um, I said it earlier, I love the, the kind of almost holding fingers moment at the end of Field Trip is, is, is beautiful. in the childhood. Mark, you heard the bell. We better get back to the podcast. Really? Yeah. I thought, you know, keep with the theme. Keep with the theme. Keep with the theme. Recess, you know, school stuff. Did you know, I didn't talk about this before, 
So, you know, like in primary school and in high school, in all kinds of school, you have a break, you have a 15 minute break, then you have a lunch. Yeah. I feel like I was the only kid in my schools to ever call that first break recess. That's everyone, because you're not American. But, like, what else do you call it? Break. Break. Break and lunch. I've decided after rewatching this that my breaks now in work are going to be called recess. Mine are not going to be called <laughs> recess. Cerebral jukebox. Um, I thought that Stevie Nicks was a boy and that Lindsay Buckingham was the girl who was singing on it. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> because I just uh, assumed by their names that that was the way around it went. And then uh, when somebody else told me I looked like Stevie Nicks, I was like, uh, thanks, I guess. I guess I'll grow my hair. How dare you? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it was Big Burly Man. <laughs> Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network.